Welcome to Scriptcast Me, the podcast that brings screenplays to life. I'm your host, Randall Scott White. Have a pretty exciting episode for you today, for you to tune into and to help out these writers who have slaved away at creating amazing stories that should become movies. And so instead of sending scripts to Hollywood to be read and misinterpreted, frankly, what this podcast does, if you don't know yet, is we basically make it into a movie in your head uh, using sound effects, using voice actors, and musically scoring to bring these, these scripts that deserve to be movies into life maybe help some producers say, wow, I can't believe I have the chance to produce this because these are these are writers who, who need to break their script through and we're here to help do that. So today we have an exciting thriller for you. It's The Protégé by Kennedy Sabelko and we're here with him today. We're going to be taking a listen to the first 15 or 20 minutes of the movie and if you like it, then you can support that film and, and help it become real. I'm going to do a quick introduction to Kennedy here, and then we're going to jump right into uh, into the story. So, Kennedy, tell us about your professional background. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am so stoked to be uh, the inaugural guest, I guess, huh? Um, yeah, a little bit about my background. You know, I'm actually a licensed uh, professional counselor. Uh, I have a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling, and uh, I am three years uh, towards my, I guess what, doctoral work, PhD in health psychology, behavioral medicine. Um, I could write psychological thrillers forever. <laughs> wow, Kennedy, I can't wait to get into this. So here we go with the Scriptcast Me produced episode of The Protege by Kennedy Sabelko. The Protege. Written by Kennedy M. Sabelko, inspired by actual events. Logline. A seasoned detective is unknowingly misdirected while investigating a series of deaths in which all of the victims, who were clients of an esteemed psychology professor, appear to have been murdered based on their mental health disorders. On screen, 1965, video footage, quote of Robert Kennedy's statement on visiting Willowbrook. I visited the state institutions for the mentally retarded, and I think particularly at Willowbrook that we have a situation that borders on a snake pit. There's very little future for the children or for those who are in these institutions. Fade out, 1970, exterior, Staten Island, New York, stormy night. Waves are choppy on the bay as storm surges. A ferry is near docking. The ferryman approaches a Toyota Carina and asks to see his ticket. Tickets, tickets. The man looks down to avoid eye contact. He holds his hand out of the window and shows his ticket. Ingus? Yeah, you're set. The Toyota Carina pulls off the carport. The car pulls to the side and the man retrieves a map from his glove compartment. 
He sees Willowbrook State School on the map, circles it, and drives to Willowbrook in the storm. Exterior, Willowbrook State School, night. The Toyota Carina pulls up in front of the three large archways of the institution. Angus exits the car and walks to the back trunk. He opens it and takes out a bassinet covered with a burlap sack. A syringe rolls off the bassinet and falls into the trunk. Angus walks into the archway of Willowbrook, looks around, and leaves the bassinet on the ground. He gets in the car, honks his horn, and then stares in his rearview mirror. As he drives off, he sees a large door from the institution open. Fade out. Present day. Interior. Washington, D.C. upscale loft penthouse. Night. A large, open concept, posh penthouse flat. There is erotic art wall to wall with a 70s arts deco vibe. A beautiful Asian woman in her mid-40s is nude, lying on her bed with an elaborate pulley system tied to her legs and neck. The pulley system is attached to a beam from her vaulted ceiling. She is in the midst of performing autoerotic asphyxiation. A red velvet sash is tied around her neck. Her head is stretched back from the tension of the pulley while masturbating. The woman moans and begins to breathe faster and faster. She is near climax. A figure appears from the shadows with a black Venetian death mask looking down over her. She opens her eyes. The killer tilts head sideways, grabs the pulley system, and begins pulling the red sash tighter and tighter. The woman struggles, climaxes, and dies simultaneously. Through the killer's eyes, while wearing black surgical gloves, the killer gently strokes the woman's hair. The killer takes out a Polaroid camera and begins taking photos of the victim. The killer begins to methodically walk through the bedroom, planting evidence. The killer pulls hair from a plastic bag and places it on a hairbrush on the end table. The killer then reaches into their knapsack, takes a finger from a formaldehyde-filled small jar and touches the nightstand next to the victim. Interior, room, unknown location, night. Someone is watching a live stream of the murder occurring in real time on their computer. Camera closes in on the person's computer screen. We see the killer's hand reach in a small plastic baggie and plant pubic hair with the tweezers in the victim's bed and on the victim's pubic area. The killer then enters the bathroom pulls off a plastic wrapper from a toothbrush and places it in the toothbrush holder next to the victim's toothbrush. Fade out. Montage. Opening sequence footage. Geraldo Rivera, Willowbrook. It's been more than six years since Robert Kennedy walked out of one of the wards here at Willowbrook and told newsmen of the horror he'd seen inside. Intercut. Newspaper clippings of missing people and unsolved serial killer headlines over the past 30 years from all over the United States. Clip of a person in public bathroom collecting pubic hair from a urinal. 
clips of CSI processing fingerprinting using microscopes, DNA molecules, DNA testing, etc. Fade out. Interior. San Diego upscale hotel lobby, evening. Dr. Chloe Sinclair, world-famous abnormal psychologist, is a tall, striking, blonde-haired, green-eyed woman who looks much younger than her 50s. She is at her book signing, autographing her top 10 bestseller, Reflections. A moderate line of people have gathered with their copies in hand, ready to be signed. Man walks up to her table. And who do I have the pleasure of signing this for? Hello, Professor. I've been following your work for decades. I find it fascinating how trauma can change our brain functioning, which can lead to really fucked up behaviors. Oh, well, thank you, I guess. And who should I make this out to? O'Rourke. You can make it out to O'Rourke. Interior, San Diego hotel room, late afternoon. Dr. Sinclair is finished with her book signing and is packing for her flight the following day. The phone rings. It is Arlene, Dr. Sinclair's receptionist for her private practice. Yes, it's been nice. The weather has been great as usual. Well, just tell her that I can see her Thursday night as scheduled, and tell her to slow down and remember to breathe. Okay, I'll see you soon. Dr. Sinclair finishes packing and turns on the TV. Flashes across the bottom of the screen. CNN breaking news. Live footage of gruesome discovery at nation's capital. Back alleyway, Washington DC, evening. Chaos as sirens blare. News station drones send live footage of paramedics arriving in the alleyway of the upscale loft penthouse apartment. Drones from high above capture police, putting up police tape and blocking off alley passageways. Other news vehicles arrive and set up behind police tape as reporters provide news coverage of the event. Interior, upscale loft apartment, night. Several uniformed police officers are outside in the back alley securing the scene. Two uniformed cops, seasoned detective Chase Mason, a Mexican-American woman in her late 40s, and rookie detective Charlie Ross, a Caucasian male in his early 30s, who appears to be green around the gills and a bit naive, enter the apartment. Two CSI techs, Janice Wentz and Philip Grimes, gather evidence, dust for prints, and take pictures of the scene. Janice, a 40-year-old seasoned CSI with a type A personality, is extremely thorough, snarky, and somewhat of a conspiracy theorist. Philip, 26 years old, is a new graduate completing his residency and eager to learn. The woman's dead body, still in the same position as earlier, has a red silk sash tied to her neck. Her neck is pulled back from the tension of the pulleys tied to the beam. The corpse is rigid and discolored as rigor mortis and decay set in. Detective Chase Mason and Charlie Ross enter. Hey Chase, how's your new partner? He's on a learning curve. How cute. She notices Ross looking disgusted by the appearance of the dead woman. Is that him? Yes, this is Detective Ross. He just made detective. Yes, just made detective last week. God, the smell. Janice looks Ross over and smiles. 
shakes her head back and forth. You're about to learn what sweet success really smells like, and don't it smell good? Hi, Detective. I'm new, too. My name is Philip. It took me months working on cadavers to get used to the smell. Not sure you ever get over it. Ross starts to speak, but doesn't really have an answer. Ah. How long? A week? Maybe a little more. Autoerotic asphyxiation? Looks like it. Hmm. Pretty rare way to go for a woman. And that's why you're here. Just want to make sure she didn't have any help. There was a case like this up in Boston about a year ago. Janice gets excited. Ooh, a serial killer. Probably not, so don't begin popping corks. Mason gazes around the room, then heads to the dead woman's bathroom. Ross stays put, staring at the body. Hey! Looking annoyed, Mason motions for Ross to follow. Ross starts towards her and passes Janice. Nice meeting you. I know. Ross and Mason enter the bathroom, and Ross tries to turn on the light, but it's broken. He flicks the light on and off, but with no success. Ross gets out his flashlight and begins scanning the bathroom. He notices the shower curtain is moving. He motions to Mason. They both pull their guns out, and Ross slowly approaches the shower curtain. He is shaking. As he slowly pulls the curtain back, a huge raven flies out from behind the shower curtain, knocking Ross to the ground. Mason remains calm and lowers her gun while shaking her head and offering a hand to Ross. Who the fuck has a raven for a pet? Interior, bathroom, continuous. The raven flies out of the bathroom and through the penthouse flat while landing on the dead woman. The raven begins picking at her eyes. CSI shoes it away. Mason and Ross leave the bathroom and head back to the bedroom. Process the bathroom, gather the evidence, and bring it down to the crime lab. CSI finishes processing the crime scene. The coroner arrives, removes the body, and takes it to the morgue. Interior, Ronald Reagan Airport Terminal, day. Dr. Sinclair arrives back in DC from her book tour. She is running late and is scurrying through the airport to the rideshare section outside. Exterior, passenger pickup. Dr. Sinclair exits the airport and heads outside. Her phone rings as she is waiting for her ride. Hello? How many times did she call? Just let her know I'm back in town and I'll see her tonight. Oh, gotta go, my ride's here. Thanks, Arlene. Okay, bye. Dr. Sinclair hangs up. While rushing to get into the car, she bumps her head on the upper door frame. While in the back seat, she pulls out her compact and glares into the mirror as her rideshare pulls off. Interior, Georgetown University, Washington, D.C., Lecture Hall, Day. Dr. Sinclair enters five minutes late. Class is already seated. Dr. Sinclair walks to the podium. Hello, everyone. I apologize for being late. Welcome to your first day of fall semester. This is abnormal psychology. If you are in the wrong class, then there's something wrong with you, and you should stay a while. <laughs> you should have already received the syllabus, so you know we will be studying psychopathology and the traits that lead to abnormal behaviors, specifically those behaviors that lead to serial killers. 
The first discussion summarizes the most common types of cognitive distortions we can see in serial killers, which are mental filtering, personalization, and blame. Real or imagined, these maladaptive thinking errors can lead to disaster. For example, mental filtering causes the individual to see only the negative and ignore anything positive in their lives. Second, personalization allows the individual to believe that everything others do or say is some kind of direct personal attack towards them. Subsequently, this leads them to blame everyone and everything around them for their problems. Obviously, this can lead to very dangerous behaviors. All right, before we get into our first assignment, I would like to get to know you a little better. All right, seniors, introduce yourself to the rest of the class and tell them why you chose to get into the field of psychology. Who would like to start? Yeah, I'll go. My name is Joe, and I got into some trouble with the law when I was younger. I want to know if it was my mom's fault. Mommy issues. <laughs> I just want to know why my sister's so fucked up. <laughs> Hello, my name is Salasia, and I identify as an African-American transgender woman. It has taken years for me to embrace who I am, so I want to help others. Hello class, my name is Kai, and I was born in Hawaii. I chose Abnormal Psych because I'm fascinated with serial killers and what makes them tick. I've studied the likes of John Wayne Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, Wernos, and the world's end killer. Wasn't his last name Sinclair or something? Hey Doc, any relations? Dr. Sinclair tilts her head and glares at Kai without saying a word. All right class. For next week, be prepared to turn in a 5 to 10 page paper on whether or not these cognitive distortions can be overcome by cognitive behavioral therapy. The class rises from their seats and starts to exit. Joe walks past Dr. Sinclair. One week? I don't want to scare any of you off, so I thought I'd take it easy on you to start the semester. Joe shakes his head. Boomer. What? <clears throat> sooner. I'll try to get it done sooner. Um, bye. Joe walks with his head down and leaves the hall. Dr. Sinclair heads to her private practice. Interior. Dr. Sinclair's bedroom. Evening. An old Victorian home that's been remodeled. Dr. Sinclair both lives and works here. Her living quarters are upstairs, and she operates her private practice on the lower level. The front room serves as her reception area, with her main office down the hallway. Dr. Sinclair slips into a long red sweater. She pours herself a glass of wine and lights a joint. She walks over to the window to discreetly blow the smoke outside. She gets comfortable in her bed and takes another drink. Alexa, put me in the mood. Sultry music plays. Dr. Sinclair's eyes become heavy. She falls asleep in her bed and begins to dream about Willowbrook. Dream sequence, 1981. Interior, Willowbrook State School, Science Lab, day. Girl eight years old with dark hair, and Chloe, 11 years old, do not seem to know each other. They're pale and gaunt, 
haven't eaten for a while. The two are trapping rats with a makeshift snare. Did you get it? Yes, I got the bastard. The girl stomps on the rat's head and kills it. She hands the dead rat to Chloe. Chloe walks over to the door and punches the window, shattering it. She bends down and picks up a piece of broken glass from the floor. She skins and guts the rat. Oh, you're bleeding! I'll be all right. Give it to me. Watch. First, cut off the head. Then, take the glass and hold up the belly skin. Be sure you don't get into the guts. You then just slice the belly all the way up to the neck. Once you've done that, bite the skin on the back of the neck and pull down to begin skinning it. After it's skinned, reach up into the ribcage and pull out all the innards just like this. Done. Let's go eat. They walk over to a table and turn on a Bunsen burner and cook the rat over the flame. Both take turns biting off meat from the rat's body. End of dream sequence. Interior, Dr. Sinclair's house, reception area, late morning. Dr. Sinclair wakes up, gets dressed, and heads to her kitchen where she pours herself coffee. She grabs her clipboard and heads down her spiral staircase. Her receptionist, Arlene, a 60-year-old African-American woman, sits at her desk reading a book. The cover of it reads, Reflections, and underneath that, Dr. Chloe Sinclair. Dr. Sinclair comes downstairs and walks to the front of her house slash reception area. Hey, Arlene, what are you reading? Arlene shows her the cover. It is Dr. Sinclair's book, Reflections. Ooh, I hear good things about that. Did you finish the new intake forms? Yes, and it captures their name, address, phone number, place of employment and work schedule, demographics, sexual identity, gender identity, sexual orientation, marital status, credit card information, and insurance information. You know, Chloe, you know way too much about your clients. Ah, the better to know you, my dear, said the big bad wolf. Oh, jeez. Any messages? Yes, ten of them. Really? All from the same client. Erica Lentz? Uh-huh. She says she needs to see you immediately. Did you tell her that I am... The phone rings, cutting her off. Arlene picks up. Dr. Sinclair's office. Oh, hello, Erica. One moment, please. She puts the call on hold. Guess who? I'll take the call in my office. Dr. Sinclair goes into her office as Arlene transfers the call. Interior, Erica's bedroom, afternoon. Erica Lentz, a 22-year-old tomboy with a pixie-cut purple hairstyle, is on her cell phone. Okay, that'd be great. Thanks for squeezing me in. Erica puts her hands up and cheers. She skips over to the mirror and smiles as she draws a huge smiley face with lipstick on the mirror. She then makes a frown with her face and smears off the smiley face and draws a frown. She again wipes off the frown, smiles, and then draws a smiley face. She leaves her room. Exterior, DC City Street, dusk. Erica recklessly rides her e-scooter down the busy street, zigzagging through traffic. She has headphones on and no helmet. She disregards a stop sign, causing a car to slam its brakes and honk at her. 
She continues oblivious and pulls up in front of Dr. Sinclair's house. Interior, Dr. Sinclair's house, reception area, dusk. Erica opens the front door and enters on her scooter. Before Arlene can say anything to her, Erica starts rambling. It was my first day of grad school. I made some new friends and joined a student organization for clean energy, and my parents bought me a new scooter after I wrecked my last one, and I ate this incredible burrito that was totally delicious but too big to finish, so I gave the rest of this homeless guy, and do you know what channel Netflix is on? Arlene jumps in, cutting her off. Wow, full day, huh? Dr. Sinclair's ready for you. Oh, okay, thanks. Erica rides her scooter down the hallway to Dr. Sinclair's office. As she enters Dr. Sinclair's office, she runs over Dr. Sinclair's foot. Ouch. Oh, I'm so sorry. Erica leans her scooter against the door and begins pacing. Dr. Sinclair is seated in a big, comfortable chair. Everything all right, Erica? Just a bit pumped up tonight. What triggered this mood? Erica scowls at her. Whatever. She immediately transforms and brightens with a wide smile. Well, I'm telling you, I haven't felt this good in a minute. And how long have you been feeling this way? What day is it? My point exactly. You're experiencing mania right now. I'm guessing you haven't been taking your lithium. Oh, well... Take them, please. We've been down this road before and you know where it leads. The last time, it was a jail cell. Erica scoffs. <laughs> oh, that? That was just for public urination. What was I supposed to do? I had to go. Erica, please, take your meds. Your mood is unregulated and will transition to severe depression. You know that. Okay, fine, fine, fine. I'll take them. So what else happened today? Oh, right. I got a new scooter and ate a burrito. I'm glad to hear your appetite is good. Did you purge it? Erica proudly pats her belly. Nope, still in there. Hey, wanna go grab a beer? Erica, I told you. Fine, fine, fine. Worth a shot, right? Did I tell you I'm seeing someone? I don't remember if I did or not. No, you didn't. Well, he's like majorly fucked up like me, so we have that in common. So yeah, he's cool, but he does have some issues. I was hoping maybe you could help him. Well, perhaps. Have him call Arlene and make an appointment. Erica puckers her lips and kisses the air towards Dr. Sinclair, making an audible kissing sound. You're the best! See ya! Wait a minute, we just started. That's it? Gotta study to get the money. See ya next week! Erica gets on her scooter and rides down the hall out of the office. Dr. Sinclair shakes her head and begins writing her therapy note. Exterior, DC City Street, night. Erica is riding her e-scooter recklessly. She turns a corner on her e-scooter and is almost taken out by a vehicle. The vehicle lays on the horn and slams the brakes. Erica takes off and immediately, from the opposite lane, a black, heavy-duty pickup truck slams into Erica, sending her body flying. Erica is lying in the street with a mangled scooter nearby. Erica rolls over, bloody, moaning. She is barely conscious with her collarbone and femur sticking out. She is paralyzed from the waist down as she attempts to pull herself away. Interior, SUV, night. Killer's point of view. The truck stops and the killer looks into the rearview mirror. It is the same killer wearing the Venetian death mask. The killer puts the truck in reverse and runs over her again and stops on top of her. The killer slowly drives over Erica's body as we hear the sounds of bone 
crushing under the wheels of the tire. The killer reaches up and turns off a small camera mounted on the dashboard. Flesh falls from the tire as he drives away. Wow, great story, great writing. Heard here first on Scriptcast Me, Kennedy Sabelko. What a story. Uh, got a got a couple more questions for you. Glad you're here in studio with us. What made you decide to write The Protégé or a screenplay? And how did you learn the ropes of formatting, story structure? Yeah, great question. Um, me and my partner moved uh, to Austin from Colorado in 2018. And at that time, uh, we were working full time. I had my private practice. Uh, she is uh, in dance. Uh, she was a dance professor and choreographer and teaching at CU Boulder at the time. Uh, she would leave me. Uh, she would abandon me, actually. Uh, she would leave t- uh, to go on her you know, winter break, summer break, spring break. She has her own uh, dance company as well. So she has dancers out in New York and DC. Uh, she would go out there to produce her work. Um, she suggested uh, taking a, a writing workshop, uh, a screenwriting 101, and I did. And I wrote, uh, st- I started formulating the idea of the protege in that workshop. For any of those young writers out there, um, definitely you can you know, just pick up a class at, at a college, a workshop. It doesn't have to be a whole coursework. Uh, I just recently won, uh, well, let's see, Best Horror Feature, Austin uh, Spotlight Film Festival. Uh, that was uh, really cool. It's my first uh, uh, at home, I guess, uh, now that I'm in Austin. Uh, my first award here in Austin, so that was really cool. I think the one I'm most proud of is uh, the best original uh, winner, best original screenplay. Uh, this is for the Blood Horror Festival of 2021 in, out in Hollywood, California. I mean, wow, that, that is some hustle. Uh, and, and for all the writers out there who are looking to make their film, talk about the drive, the, the, what's the pain that it's taken to get here. I mean, you're, you're among many, right? But this, this is a unique way uh, that you're bringing it to life. Oh, thank you so much, Randall, yeah, for bringing that up. This movie is uh, inspired by actual events. The institutionalization of the, one of the first protégés in the movie uh, happened to me. Uh, I was placed in a psychiatric hospital at 12 years old. During this time, uh, they did not separate adults from adolescents. And I have it seared in my mind. I was befriended by this woman. Her name was Jeannie. And... Um, she was a friend of mine, you know, after being there, but as I got older, I realized what I was witnessing, she was foaming at the mouth, and she had become, she was coming back from electric shock treatment, is what I realized uh, at, at growing older as an adult, is what I, I witnessed there. Um, witnessed, you know, people with schizophrenia just scratching at the walls, mumbling, mumbling to themselves. Um, so that was, that, you know, that was an actual event that inspired me to write this. And then also the diagnoses of the victims in this movie are actually diagnoses that I've experienced in my practice over the past 20 years. And some of those get pretty, pretty disturbing. And Angus Sinclair, the World's End killer, was a real life serial killer who died in prison in 2019. And of course, the whole, the whole basis of the movie, or I guess the, the meat and potatoes, the foundation is Willowbrook State School a real mental health, a sane asylum uh, for children and adolescents which ran between 1942 and 1987. 
You'll see references with Geraldo Rivera as well as Robert Kennedy in this movie as they really speak about the conditions of Willowbrook and the atrocities the children uh, that went there endured over a lifespan. So I actually, uh, when researching your, uh, your Based on True Events part of the script for this episode, watched that documentary with Geraldo Havera where they go to Willowbrook and you know at the time the the film footage is just awfully old but it's so dark in there you have all these people just wailing and like rocking back and forth on the floor and they're just living in their own shit uh literally the smell of the place was so repulsive that uh you know they they ended up uh, i don't want to give it away here but they did shut it down eventually but um you shining light on this with a fictional story I love how it, this is actually a real uh, tragedy and atrocity that the way mental health used to be handled. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I was a part of that. Um, I was the late end of this where they started shutting down and making it illegal uh, to stop putting people in four-point leather, leather restraints. When they stopped uh, doing electroshock treatment, when they stopped doing, you know, lobotomies even, uh, that occurred well into the seven, late 60s and 70s. Um, you know, and to be witness to that, you know, part of that um, is really what obviously, you know, drove me, I should say, to, to reach, you know, my level where I'm at and be a, be a licensed clinician and, and helping people, you know, overcome some of this stuff that I had to go through. Um, so although this does bring mental illness, uh, you know, to, to the forefront uh, in, a, in an extremely macabre way, uh, it is fun. It's a fun movie. It's a very suspenseful movie. It is a dark movie um, because a lot of this stuff, like I said, actually did happen. And that wraps it up for this episode of Scriptcast Me with your host, Randall Scott White. Tune in next time where we'll have a comedy for you. We'll see you soon.